Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Amen. I feel like we're getting toward Christmas now. Awesome. Well, open your Bibles to Psalm, Psalm number 30, the Psalm, Psalm number 30. I wonder if anyone here has used commando hooks recently or command hooks. They're not commando hooks, they're command hooks, right? <laughs> Guess it depends on how you use them, right? Well, I've got some command hooks here in my pocket. Uh, we're told that this one will hold four pounds worth of things and uh, this one will hold eight pounds worth of things. And you know, these are great for putting wreaths on the door and other things during Christmas time, you know, and perhaps you've used them over the years to put pictures on the wall. You know, before 3M came up with the command hooks, you would uh, have to put a, a nail hole in the wall, and then you'd decide you wanted the picture over there instead of over here, and when you moved it, you had that unsightly nail hole there, right? Or they had other sticky things that you could put to a wall, and when you pulled it off, you'd pull the paint off the wall too. And so they finally got the technology right, where you could put, peel off the back of this, put it on the wall, and then you could put your painting or whatever on there and it would hold it up as long as you stayed within the weight category. Now, you know Danny Campbell well enough to know sometimes I've tried to use these and, and put too much weight on them, right? And do you know what happened? Well, the item that was on it came down as well as the command hook itself. They both came crashing down. Now, uh, you, you don't want to do that. Has anybody else ever experienced that? I saw some re recognition out there that others might have had the same thing happen. Well, in his wonderful book, Hoping for Happiness, Barnabas Piper, the son of John Piper, uh, this is a fairly new book. I think it's his newest one. He says that we often have the same problem in life. We take the good gifts that God has given us, things that are to be rightly enjoyed in their place, and we put the wrong expectations uh, on those things and we expect them to make us happy. And just like the commando hook and the item falls to the ground, when we have the wrong expectation of the wrong things or the wrong expectations of the right things, uh, then uh, we turn them into idols and we, they don't bring the happiness that they hope uh, they will. Now, I think about talent. God has given you talents of different kinds and he's given those to you so you can glorify him. He gives us relationships to honor him within. He gives us uh, life experiences. He gives us the uh, stuff that we have, you know. And in its right place, it can bring a great blessing to our lives when we have the wrong expectations of things, hoping things bring us happiness, any created thing, then it can mess us up. I think about sports. Um, you know, there's only one team every year that can win the championship, right? 
And if your expectation is it will be a losing year, it'll be a terrible year if we don't stand at the top of the page at the end of the year, uh, that is the goal, of course. Everybody wants to do as best as they can, but if you are not going to be content and happy unless that happens, well, then far more people are going to be disappointed than okay. And even the testimonies have come in that those who hoped that would bring meaning and a sense of success and satisfaction to their life. I remember Deion Sanders, who later became a Christian. He said when he won his second Super Bowl, people remember the picture of him holding the trophy there. And he said it wasn't too long after that. I just felt so empty empty because I thought that would bring me happiness and it did not. Uh, When you expect created things to fill the place that only the creator can, you turn those things into idols and that will disappoint you greatly. I love what Barnabas Piper says. Listen to this quote. Happiness is found in expecting the right things of the right things. You know, you think about the three little bears, right? One uh, got, the, got into the bed there that was too hard, and the second bed was too soft, and the third one was just right, right? When we have just right expectations, then we, are, we, we get that gladness we're looking for. Just right expectations are those that rest in godly realism. So when we have the right expectations of temporal things and experiences, while looking forward to eternal happiness with Jesus, we can experience underlying gladness in the ups and downs of life. Now, I don't know everyone in the room, but I know three things about you. And the first one is that God has, is your creator and God doesn't make any junk. Uh, under that first category, we could look and see that God has a purpose and plan. He has a design for every life. I know that about you. I also know that because you're a child of Adam, you are deeply flawed. Uh, because of sin. Uh, And so even though God has a perfect plan and desire for your life and a design on your life, you are deeply flawed and you don't experience that design for your life. And then, of course, we know the third thing, that God is the source of lasting gladness and Jesus has indeed come come down from heaven to earth so that he could restore you to right fellowship with God, get you that reserved place in heaven. And then, You could reorder your life and all the temporal things in it around his purpose and plan for your life. Now today we're going to see something like that in uh, David's uh, Psalm 30. It's a thanksgiving passage and we see David wrestle with those very truths. We see him wrestle where lasting gladness comes from in the midst of things that were ups for David, in the midst of things that were downs for David, in the ups and downs of life, David had discovered the secret of where true gladness comes from, not only at the beginning of your relationship with God, but also as you go along and recalibrate your life according to his word. So Psalm 30, and we're going to read the entire thing. The inscription reads that it's a psalm, a song at the dedication of the house of David. That might have been his earthly house that he built. It might be a reference to the temple uh, that was built in his son's lifetime, Solomon's lifetime. But David certainly spent a lot of his time getting ready for that to be built. And so uh, I I tend to think that along with other scholars that it is talking about the um, temple to come. And we'll talk about that. Verse 1, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up. And have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord my God, I cried out to you and you healed me. O Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. You've kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. 
Now in my prosperity, I said, I will never be moved. Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain stand strong, but you hid your face and I was troubled. I cried out to you, O Lord, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth? Hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth, my grief clothes, and clothed me with gladness. To the end that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Thankful for lifetimes of favor. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this amazing psalm, this psalm of thanksgiving that goes along with other words of thanksgiving in the Bible. We truly have so much to be thankful for, many times more than we realize. Lord, we have set our expectations on temporal things far too often and been disappointed when they inevitably don't bring lasting happiness. They only bring a temporary happiness, God. And that is true in so many areas of our life, Lord. You are what lasts forever, our relationship with you, the relationships we have in you. And Lord, I thank you so much that this psalm gives us and talks to us about times of trouble and distress, but has everything overshadowed by the lifetimes of favor that a believer enjoys in you, God and that we as a company of believers enjoy in you that lasts not only this lifetime, but in the life to come. Lord God, I pray you'll bless us as we look at this text. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, this is such a personal psalm of David. All but two of the 12 verses he says directly to the Lord, and then he's got two that encourage us to join him in praising the Lord. So I want to, on the end of this Thanksgiving weekend, give this to you as a way to later on go back through yourself and uh, let David's words guide your words in the things that you're thankful for, and especially in the one year's worth of things that he has brought you through and has brought you to this moment that you're in now. And so I'm going to go first person with the way we look at each set of the uh, verses here. Verses one through three, I thank you God for delivering me. David is thankful for God's deliverance. Now this psalm begins in verse one and ends in verse 12 with David expressing thanksgiving, thanks to God for all his many blessings. In verses one through three, David starts by thanking God for his passion past deliverances, the things God had done for David in his past. And we think particularly of this past year as we're at Thanksgiving time now. I love verse one. He says, I will extol you, Yahweh, for you have lifted me up. Extol, lift up. I will lift you up, O Lord, because you have lifted me up. I love the New Testament verse that says, we love Jesus. We love him because he, what? He first loved us, right? Lord, you have lifted me up, and so I want to lift you up. I I was in despair, and you lifted me up. And then David goes on to mention three specific ways in verses 1 through 3 that God had delivered him in the past. He first says that he had been delivered from his enemies. Then he says he had experienced God's hand of healing, and then that he had overcome near-death experiences. Let's look at each of these. He says he has been delivered from his enemies throughout his life. It's the last part of verse 1. He says, you have not let my foes rejoice over me. I like the way David says that. He could have put it in the, uh, he, he could have made himself the center of the uh, stage there. He could have said, God, thank you for the victories that I've had in you. 
But instead, he turns it around and he thanks God for delivering him from the enemies that he had. Now, David lived in a warrior's time, and during his lifetime, he had many actual physical enemies. But we all, as we go through life, have adversities. We have things that are oppositions to us, etc. And we could talk about the victories we've had in life, but David turns it around and gives all praise and glory to God for the deliverances. Think about that in the life of David for a moment. As a young shepherd boy, he had fought lions and bears off of the sheep. And he, uh, it's amazing to think about that some of his best moments were when he was a youth. After that, he had the amazing victory over Goliath. Just a quick word to our younger folks here. If you are, have any heart to write songs, write songs now. Do the same with poetry or books or whatever it is. I think about how this year is the 50th anniversary of the Lighthouse song, that beautiful song. But it was written... 50 years ago by Ronnie Henson when he was 21 years old. He was in a band, the Hensons, with his 11-year-old sibling, his 14-year-old sibling, and his 17-year-old sibling. I think the the girl was a 17-year-old. And they needed a song because they were singing with other groups as they traveled around California. And they were a bit of a sensation, but they'd get up and sing the songs. And then the groups that came after them, they'd already had their song sang by the Hensons. And so a promoter said, you guys need to come up with some of your own songs. And Ronnie's like, oh no, we're not going to make it if we don't write our own songs. And so he went down to the basement of a church and got a roll of toilet paper and in 10 minutes time wrote out the lyrics to The Lighthouse. Now Ronnie Henson has gone on to be a great songwriter and written many, many wonderful songs, but never one as famous or as popular as used of the Lord as the um, lighthouse song. And I think about David. His greatest victory perhaps in life was the victory David over Goliath, right? And yet he had a tremendous uh, career of doing great things for the Lord, but that was the biggest one. And so when you're young, be ready to go ahead and be used of God in ways that he has for you. As a young soldier, he successfully defeated many Philistines. Uh, they had the song, Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. Then he spent ten years on the run from jealous King Saul, who was jealous of this young upstart that could do so many neat things. When he finally became king, David fought Philistines and Jebusites and many others on the way to establishing secure borders for Israel in their day and the capital at Jerusalem. Later in life, he had to overcome a rebellion by his own son, Absalom, and it caused him great pain to have to do it. In his life, David overcame so much opposition and some of us have as well. And if you've overcome some adversity this year, some troubles this year, you ought to give God thanks for that. You ought to give praise about that. You ought to testify to that about that. Older David gave God thanks for getting him through it all, and so should we. Well, we also see in verses 1 through 3 that David had experienced God's healing hand many times. Look at verse 2. He says, O Yahweh, my Elohim, O Lord my God, I cried out to you and you healed me. Many times over the years, David had cried out. And that word for healed there is kind of a stretchy word. It includes not just a physical ailments, but it includes mental things too, depression, anxiety, emotional things, spiritual highs and lows. Lord, there's been many times where I had a physical, emotional, or spiritual need. And Lord, I cried out to you and you've healed me. Many of you can testify that the Lord brought you through something like that this year, and you ought to give him glory. You ought to give him the praise. David believed in music therapy, didn't he? Uh, he was, as a young man, had played a harp, and it helped King Saul when Saul had a troubled spirit. 
and half of the Psalms were by David and they were to be put to music, they were to be sang. And in many of those Psalms, he talks about the troubles he had, how God met him in those troubles as he prayed and how on the other side of that, he was able to get up and go on with his day and praise the Lord. Well, Look at verse 3. O Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. The word for grave there is Sheol. You've kept me alive. Here David is talking about the times that he almost died but did not die. And some of you have come through something like that this year, some scare that you had. Some of our members are in that scare right now. The word Sheol there in the Old Testament times was the holding place of the dead. Everybody that died went to Sheol. That's the Hebrew word. Hades is the Greek word. Everybody that died went there. If you do not know the Lord, that's where you'll be before the final judgment after you die. You'll be held in Sheol slash Hades until the great white throne judgment. After Jesus died and rose from the dead, all the Old Testament believers who had looked forward to, by faith in Christ to what he would do one day for them. When he died on the cross, we told that he led captivity captive and he brought all those Old Testament saints up to heaven. Now when a believer dies, for them to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and we await the future blessings of a new body on a new earth with the Lord. But even now, heaven is so wonderful for the believers that are there. So the moment Linda died here, her body was transported by the angels up to the presence of the Lord, and one day she'll have a new body on a new earth. That is our great joy that all this is temporary compared to the eternity that awaits. But it's temporary for the non-believer too, because eternity in hell awaits if you don't turn to Christ as the just punishment for your sin that Jesus bore. But David wasn't concerned about hellfire at this point. He knew he knew the Lord. He's concerned about just dying. He wanted another chance to live and God had brought him through and some of you have been brought through. You've been, got a little bit more of life and even though your loved ones are in heaven waiting for you, you uh, are still here and David gives thanks for that. The first three verses filled with gratitude for the ways that God had delivered from opposition and enemies, for the ways that God had healed over the years mentally, physically, spiritually, and for keeping him from a near-death experiences there. Well, in verses 4 and 5, he changes from I to more of a we. We thank you, God, that weeping gives way to joy. Note uh, that here the psalm turns to David inviting others to join him. I love verses 4 and 5, so powerful. Look at verse 4, he says, Sing praises to the Lord, you saints of his. I love that phrase, you saints of his. Do you love Jesus? then you're saints of his. And we ought to sing like we are, right? The word for saint is so interesting there. You have heard me speak of God's kesed. Uh, I put it up there, H-E-S-E-D, kesed, his faithful love. If you've got the Holman Christian Standard Bible out there, then it's always translated faithful love. If you've got the English Standard version out there, it's always translated God's steadfast love, steadfast love. King James, New King James, others have mercy, loving kindness, all kinds of different ways to transfer, tra translate that beautiful word. It is one of the key words of the Old Testament, the fact that God has such faithful love for us. The word for saints actually related to that word. 
They, these are those who love the Lord in response to his faithful love of them. So if hesed is God's faithful love, to be Hasidic is to be a faithful lover of God, a saint of his. And that's where the Hasidic Jews took their name from because they wanted to be known as those who love God and love his word. Those of us who love God respond by singing praises to his name. David says in verse four, give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. So this is key because he has give thanks at the beginning and the end of the psalm, but here in the middle, he says give thanks, but in this case, it's not for the things God has done, it's for the remembrance of his holy name. And something was missing at your Thanksgiving this year. If you went around the table and you said, give thanks for something, and you said, well, I'm thankful to God for health. That's great, that is a gift of God. I'm thankful to God for salvation. That's great, that's a gift of God. I'm thankful to God for my family. Oh yes, our families. I'm thankful for my job that I was able to keep this year. I'm thankful for this or that or the other. That's great, but those are all in the category of what he's done. Did you take time to just stop and thank him for who he is? That's what David says here. And if you didn't intentionally do that Thursday, make sure you do it at lunch today before the weekend ends, before you get in the car and go back to wherever you came from, right? Remember Isaiah 6? What are the angels doing all the time for the Lord? What are they singing? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The entire earth is filled with his glory. And we ought to sing about his holiness. How he ain't, he, he ain't like us. He ain't from around here, is he? You know, uh, all the things we get wrong, Jesus got right. We love imperfectly, he loves perfectly. He only wants to bless in all the ways that we really would be blessed. We accept cheap substitutes that aren't in keeping with his great love for us. Oh my goodness, you need to thank Jesus for who he is also. And not only that he's holy, but for his glory, for who he is. God, you're an awesome creator. God, you are love. You are worthy of our praise and thanks. And we wonder, why would a holy God like you, God, want anything to do with sinful humans like us? It's just a testimony to who he is. It's who you are, it's who you are, it's who you are, we sing, and it really is his great love for us. Now we come to the focal verse in this psalm. It's verse five. The focus of this psalm, moves. everything moves toward verse five. It says, for his anger is but for a what? For a moment. His anger, God does get angry at it sometimes. Uh, sometimes. He does get angry at our sinful uh, wanderings from him as believers. His anger is for a moment, but what's his favor for? It says here for life, the Hebrew is lifetimes. Man, it just keeps going and going and going. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Many of those of you who are widows or widowers, you've experienced that. Oh, that time of grief, the time of weeping, the time of mourning. And you still miss that loved one. It's part of who you are. And you missed their presence at Thanksgiving. You're going to miss their presence at Christmas. But you were surprised as time passed and morning came. And all of a sudden there was gladness there. You weren't glad your loved one was gone, but you're glad you knew where they were with the Lord and that you can join them again one day. Weeping may come for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Folks, I love how this lays out. It's so cool. There are times that God is angry at us because of our sin. But David contrasts the times of God's discipline with lifetimes of favor, of grace. And I hope you've got that proportion down for your own life. 
1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He does not forgive our, our, uh, us our sins based on our faithfulness. We're unfaithful. He forgives us based on a promise he's made to himself, his own faithfulness, his own justice, because he can always point to the cross and say, yep, that one too is dealt with. As ugly as that is in Eddie's life, as ugly as that is in Danny's life, it was paid for at the cross. It's covered. I got you covered, Danny. I got you covered, Eddie. And so when we humbly acknowledge our sin and receive Christ's forgiveness, guess what happens to God's anger? It goes right to the cross, already taken care of. And what God wants you to know, that his favor, his grace is for a lifetime, forever, right? Momentary anger, repentance on our part, sin taken care of, lifetimes of experiencing his grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. If you're in a time of weeping right now and feel that all is dark, 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 know that daylight joy is coming your way. The Psalms of David reveal to us a man who over and over again experienced troubles, but daylight joy, coming daylight joy, kept him going. Now, those words we just saw in verse 5, are going to mean all the more in relationship to what comes next, where David gets back to uh, a testimony. Verses 6 through 10, David essentially says, I thank you, God, for humbling my pride. In verses 6 and 7, David confesses a very bad sin, the sin of pride, the sin of self-sufficiency, of thinking that, hey, God, you got me here and I'm thankful for it. I can take it from here, God, thank you. And when that happens, when you have moments like that where you go, yes, God, you got me here. Thank you. I was such a mess. You saved me. You gave me relief and forgiveness. But I've got it from here, God. And then we trip over our feet and immediately go out and fall when we go back to that pride, when we go back to that self-sufficiency. David is not talking here about a time he was an unbeliever. He's talking about as a person of faith, a time that he thought he had it all figured out. Let's look at it here. He says, in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. You know what he's saying? He's saying, hey, I'm at a good place, God, and I'm never going to go back again to anything but prosperity. This is great. I can keep on living from here. This is great. I don't need you, God. I, can t- I got it from here. And he says, Lord, by your favor, you've made my mountain stand strong. David thought that he had somehow done something to make his own mountain strong, to make Jerusalem, to make Israel strong. God had done it, and David began to overlook that fact. Do you see what David's saying? He said, Lord, I forgot you were responsible for making me secure and strong like a mountain. I got proud, and then came my fall. You know, the scripture does teach that pride, our pride comes before our fall, right? We get a little full of ourselves thinking, okay, man, it was my talent that did this. It was my strength, my resources that got me in the position I am. And now I can go on from here. Well, what did God do to David when he acted like a self-sufficient fool? Look at the end of verse seven. He says at the end of verse seven, you hid your face and I was troubled. So David said, man, I'm a, I'm a believer. I love God and God loves me. I'm secure and strong. Man, I'll never blow it again. I'll never mess up again. And uh, what did God do? God said, I see too much pride there, David. You're acting like you're responsible for all that's happened in your life. David, I'm going to take a step back. And you and your self-sufficiency see how that works for you. Wow. 
David rightly says in verse 7, I was troubled, I was terrified, I was dismayed because I thought, man, I could have it all and just assume God's continuing favor and I didn't seek him like I did. I wasn't doing my devotions like, he did, like I was. I wasn't spending my time writing songs and in prayer and praise like I was. I was just coasting along in my complacency. And there are people all around this room and watching online that are like that right now. You are coasting based on previous encounters with the Lord, previous time spent seeking his face in the word. And God's saying to you, I miss my time with you. And you're saying, God, I just don't have time for you. David said, that's where I was at. And God acted to stop that self-sufficiency from being even worse than it was. My guess as your pastor is that perhaps as many as 50% of you are experiencing either the first part of verse 6 or the second part of verse, uh, where it's in verse 7 now. You have forgotten that everything good that you are and have has come from God. You're proud of how self-sufficient you are and what you've accomplished. And there ought to be joy in accomplishing things for the Lord. But the Bible does warn that pride goes before the fall. And your fall will happen soon if you don't repent and get back on track. And again, I'm not talking about losing your salvation here. I'm talking about how in response to your pride, God may hide his face from you and you feel troubled to your very core. During times of pride, believers can cause great damage to themselves and collateral damage to those around them as you live in the flesh. Some of you are living that out now. Some of you have experienced that in the past. You were a believer but you stopped spending time with God, you stopped seeking his face, you started acting in pride and self-sufficiency, you started acting in the flesh, and then uh, you got back into, said, okay, listen, I can go back to my alcohol now, and that messed you up again. I can, I, I can succeed in inappropriate relationships where others failed, and, and you've been messed up by that again. I, I can, I, I can uh, go ahead and win the game without praying, and then you fell on your face and you lost to somebody you shouldn't have lost to. All those different things can happen. Now, folks, we know that David's biggest sin was the one with Bathsheba and then her husband Uriah, the adultery with her, the murder of her husband, right? He was responsible for that death. That was the biggest one. But what was the second biggest sin of David that the Scripture records? Somebody help me out here. Yeah, the numbering of the people in 2 Samuel chapter 24. Um, now, here's why I mentioned that. Go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel 24 now. And the reason I mention that is because Charles Spurgeon and many other scholars believe that Psalm 30 was what David wrote after the occasion of 2 Samuel chapter 24. So we're going to look at verse 10. David had fended off Absalom's revolt. He had rebuilt uh, he, he had uh, knocked out the adversaries again. Israel was secure. Jerusalem was secure. And David said, hey, I want to know what I can do with this army I've got. The I started coming instead of the God's army. It was David's army all of a sudden. I, 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 my, 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 rather than God, 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 right? And he figured out he had 1.3 million soldiers that he could fight others with. And... Um, Verse 10 says, And David's heart condemned him after he'd numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, 
saying, go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three options, three options. None of them are going to be good. Choose one for yourself that I may do it for you. So God, Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall you be three days, or there'll be three days plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I shall take back to him who sent me. Seven years is a long time. David probably rejected that one outright. Then three months where he could be on the run from his enemies. He had spent years on the run from Saul and then Absalom. He certainly didn't want to go through that again. So he said, this whole thing can be over in three days. That's the one that I'll choose. Verse 14, and David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel, a pestilence from the morning till the appointed time. From Dan to Beersheba, from all the way north to all the way south, 70,000 men of the people died. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, it's enough, now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Wow. The chapter ends, that's where the plague stopped, that threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And the plague stops, and David, at the end of the passage, winds up buying that threshing floor, and it becomes the site where later Solomon's temple was built on. But God humbled his pride, David's pride. He sent a pestilence on the land. 70,000 people died. David had a hard time with that. We would too. But when leaders of anything have unhumbled hearts, it has great consequences on those they influence. The message in any generation to the leader and the people is to repent of pride and ingratitude and turn back to God. And back in Psalm 30, we see that's what David did. David recognized that his pride, his self-sufficiency had brought disaster on him and it had consequences that were hard for everyone he led. But look at verse 8. He says, I cried out to you, Lord. To you I made supplication. Mm. David recognized how weak he was. He was rejecting the pride that had brought him to this moment. Now, sometimes... People ask the question, isn't Christianity just a crutch for weak people? I remember back at Christian college and then in seminary too, we would have classes and that'd be one of the questions. How are you going to answer that one when it comes? And people would speak for all kinds of time about how you answer the, the charge that Christianity is a crutch for weak people. And they got around to me in one of those classes and, uh, you know, I was lost till I was 17 and I knew that I hadn't brought anything to Jesus. He'd brought it all to me, Right. I knew that I was a zero before Christ came into my life. When, I came, when he came into my life as a 17-year-old senior in high school, he made me a 10, but it's because he's a 10, right? So if the 10's with you, you're a 10. But if somehow you could take Jesus away, you'd have nothing all over again. So when they got around to me and they said, hey, Danny, how do you answer that? Isn't Christianity a crutch for weak people? I said, sure it is. Absolutely it is. We don't need to answer that like we've got some kind of pride or self-sufficiency of our own. That's the very point of Christianity, recognizing that you are too weak to go to heaven on your own. You can't deal with your sin problem by yourself. I've got family members that think I'm weak, and I answer, of course I am. You're just proud and self-sufficient, and you don't realize your need of God, and because of that, God will let you go on to hell then. But you don't have to. You don't have to. For those that will acknowledge they are weak and they do need the Lord, that's where he comes and says, I'll camp out here a while. 
for a lifetime of favor for you, for lifetimes of favor, forever of favor. And so David says, man, I don't know why I was ever proud and self-sufficient like that, but when I realized these consequences, I once again cried out to the Lord. Verse eight, I cried out to the Lord and he heard my cry. Mm, So wonderful to see. I love how verse nine is so typical. Look at the argument. It's so typical of Old Testament praying and we're supposed to do more of this ourselves. Uh, you know, people look at Jacob wrestling with God and they're like, well, I, I don't think I could ever wrestle with God, you know, but God delights when we in our prayer lives wrestle with him. When we say, God, this is what you promised. This is what I'm experiencing. I want you to help me with that, you know? And when we wrestle with him in pride about the eternal realities that he has for us. Verse nine, he says, God, what profit is there in my blood? When I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth? He's doing just like a lot of bargaining Old Testament prayers here, and he's saying, God, listen, if, if I die through this, I can't tell anybody, anybody the great testimony of how you worked through all this. I can't sing you another song. I can't hold the microphone again and testify to you. And so, Lord, if you'll get me through this, I'll be able to say some more praises to you before I go and be with you. And God said, that's great. God did. Lord, if you don't allow me to live, I won't be able to testify about this. God said, okay, I'll let you live a little longer. You better remember to testify about this. God did and David did. Folks, if God has brought you through anything Psalm 30 addresses, a possible death experience this year, then make sure you testify about it to others. And it's also true for the other ways of deliverance and healings that he's spoken about here. Uh, You know, You know what the body of Christ is missing both at the tabernacle and everywhere else? It's missing more testimonies. Too many people are private about what God's done in their lives. He's left you here to testify about it when you're with others in a small group. When you get a chance before the entire body, say, I am weak, but he is strong. I was barely hanging on, but he connected the dots for me, and now I'm going to heaven, and I want everybody to know about it. This past year, I almost died, but he brought me through. Barry Neal has given a great example of testifying like this when he had his near-death experience and came out the other side testifying and still testifying to it. Why else has God left you here uh, but to share his love with others and to bring people to heaven with you? Verses 11 and 12 brings us home, uh, brings us down the final stretch. David says, I thank you, God, for a little more time here to sing. I think it's so cool that if this does relate to 2 Samuel 24, that where the pestilence stopped, where it came here and no further, David said, this would be a pretty good field to buy here. And he bought that threshing floor. And it became the place where later Solomon built the temple. Do you catch that? The place the pestilence ended became the place of prayer for all nations. Some of you have had something devastating happen to you in your life. You've had something devastating happen to you this year. And God has gotten you to the other side of it. And here's what you're thinking. I never want to think about that again. I never want to speak about that again. And yet the very place the pestilence stopped might be the place where a temple of praise is supposed to be built, a temple of prayer for all others to experience God's goodness like you have. 
2 Corinthians 1 says, God is the God of all comfort. Blessed be the God of all comfort who comforts us in any of the afflictions that we've been through so we can comfort others going through affliction. And I'm not just preaching this to you now. I'm preaching this to myself because I've got an area or two where I just don't want to talk about it. You know what I'm talking about? I don't want to talk about it. And God's dealing with me and saying, you know, Danny, there's others ashamed and have something like that going on in their own family. And maybe if you would give God praise for how he's seeing you through this time, it might help them get through a time like that also. The place the pestilence ended is the place where Solomon's temple one day later was built. Folks, saints of God must not let ourselves be defined by either our temporal prosperity or adversity, but by our eternal life relationship with the living God. Amen? Gladness despite tough circumstances. His anger, it's momentary. His favor for lifetimes. His, the weeping may come for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Folks, it's appropriate to mourn, but saints mourn in the context of their faith. Look at those last two verses, 11 and 12. What does he say? God, you've turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my grief clothes, the sackcloth, and you've clothed me with gladness. Why? He says in verse 12, to the end, for the very purpose, that's what end means, for the purpose that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. To this end, for the purpose that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. Oh, God has brought you through. Many things in 2020, many things in your life. If he saved your soul, tell people about it. If he's brought you through some kind of physical, mental, emotional thing that you had to be healed of, give him praise, give him glory. If, if he has brought you through a near-death experience, give him glory. And isn't it great that any morning we do here is in the context of what he has for us. And I look out and I see some of the ones shaking their head the most or some of them have been through the hardest things, things like cancer, things like a near-death experience, things like burying a beloved husband, child, somebody else, and God's brought you through. This Thanksgiving, thank God that he's given you a little more time down here to testify. Yes, things are hard. Yes, we mourn, but we don't mourn as those who have no hope. Life goes on and he uses us. And then his retirement plan is out of this world. Won't you bow your heads? Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Tabernacle Today.